0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3,
1: 770 CHQR. Welcome back. We're not far away from uh, a new Alberta budget, and I think we all expect it's not going to be a pretty picture, so... We were already facing challenges as a province before this pandemic and uh, the past 12 months have really exacerbated that whole situation. So we got some tough decisions to make in the years ahead, certainly when it comes to the amount of money we spend. But perhaps part of that conversation also needs to be on the other side, the amount of money uh, we generate and how we generate it. The Business Council of Alberta is uh, urging the government, urging Albertans to to have that conversation and to look at other revenue tools and options as a way to help bring some, some sanity back to Alberta's finances. So you can read this new report that they've released. It's up at businesscouncilab.com. Joining us to talk more about this report and the, the conversation that Alberta needs to have, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Adam Lake. who is was president of the Business Council of Canada. Adam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks, Robert, for having me.
1: Uh, so talk a bit about kind of you know the the motivation here uh, for this report. what What's prompted this, and uh, what's the conversation you think we, we need to have?
2: Yeah, well, you know much of the attention today has, has focused on the revenue pieces that we uh, we've talked about, but i want to I want to make it very clear that uh, the business council believes that Alberta has both a expense and a revenue problem, so mm-hmm. we we spend too much uh, and we don't bring in enough. Uh, And the reality is we're not going to solve that problem by tackling either or. Uh, The the scope and the magnitude of our challenge is simply so great, we have to meet in the middle. So we need to tackle expenses, and we need to tackle revenue. And we strongly support uh, what the province has done and is moving down the path with respect to the recommendation of the McKinnon panel, which really tackled Alberta's expense profile. Um, And so we felt that the expense side of the conversation really had been well handled by the McKinnon Report and the McKinnon Panel, and how the province is implementing uh, the recommendations of that. So we didn't spend a lot of time on the expenses, other than to say we do spend uh, more. We spend about 11% more uh, than our average counterpart peer provinces. Um, so we focus on the revenue side. But again, we do have to meet in the middle. And what we said is we really do need to look at changing the revenue model for Alberta. Uh, it's not right-sized for the 21st century. It's not right-sized for a very different uh, natural resource sector than we've had in previous decades. Um, and so it's time to look at how do we reimagine it so that we create something that is more stable, uh, more certain, uh, more competitive, uh, and more equitable.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the, the competitiveness side, because, you know, I, I think we, we face some big challenges. And to some extent, they, they run parallel, but there, there's potentially a conflict when we look at, you know, the challenge of recovery and coming out of this pandemic and getting the economy going again and being a, a competitive jurisdiction, but also trying to to slay this deficit dragon that, uh, you know, is, is certainly a lot bigger now than, than it was even a year ago. Mm. So do we prioritize one over the other? In the short term, or do they go hand-in-hand, in in your view? How do we look at it through that lens, do you think?
2: Yeah, timing is everything, Rob, and what we recommend is that uh, the province tackle the expenditure side, prove to Albertans that they're spending the money they collect already very wisely uh, and very prudently, and then to balance out the rest To do that won't get us everywhere we need to get to uh, fiscally, Uh, then look at, at the revenue model. Um, and so first we have, to, we have to prove to Albertans we're spending the money wisely, tackle the expenses, and then, and then on the revenue side, the reality is, is that to introduce some of the potential options for, uh, for, for revenue, such as a, a sales tax, Albertans need to have a referendum. So this is going to take time, to discuss the options with Albertans, provide the good information, conduct the referendum. So, and we also agree with the premier's statement that this is not the time to implement uh, new taxes. So, once we feel that the the uh, the, the, the major implications for households uh, of the COVID pandemic are, are passed, uh, and we've tackled the expense side, then it's time to turn our attention to the revenue. So that may be, you know, two, three, four years out. But this is a uh, this is not a quick conversation. Uh, so we do need to make sure we, we plant the seeds along the way to begin to get Albertans uh, informed and thinking about the potential range of options.
1: Yeah, I think as you alluded to, I mean, you know, when when we're going through tough times, or going through a recession, uh, you know, a tax increase can, can often, often hamper that recovery. And I think as we've seen in the past in Alberta, when times are good, when the economy is booming, we don't really have a revenue problem, right? And and mm-hmm. so we sort of get trapped in this cycle where we never really uh, address this issue. We're probably not likely to see those kinds of boom times again, and kind of that boom and bust cycle is maybe part of the reason why we're in the situation we're in. So why is it important now to finally commit ourselves to, to re-examining the, the revenue side
2: uh, well I think, as you alluded to, you know, we have a very different natural resource sector now than we did uh, 20 years ago, uh, and so what's happened is we've we've built a built a, a model that isn't necessarily right size for the 21st century uh, and that very different natural resource sector. Um, and so, as I say, these conversations uh, will take time. Uh, Alberta has a long history of, of of being very proud of not having a sales tax. It's going to take some time to really explore. Uh, once once the expense side of the ledger has been handled, why do we need to consider a sales tax? Uh, what are the other options? There are actually some creative solutions around this, Rob. That isn't just about a layering on of new taxes; that it's actually rethinking how we how we how we tax and collect revenue. So we may see a harmonized sales tax introduced, but we may see personal income taxes drop as a result because of the way in which that that tax can be structured. Yeah. So. Assessing those options, laying them out, having conversations with Albertans will take uh, quite a bit of time, and so that's why we said now is the time to start uh, talking about this, start exploring it, to start studying it. Um, and uh, the, the COVID pandemic it, it just further illustrates the vulnerability um, of our of our revenue model uh, because of, uh, of of even further depressed resource activity. So uh, we have to kind of get off that roller coaster. We need to create something that's more stable. Uh, that's more certain, that has some greater uh, fairness, um, and enable us to be competitive uh, as we come out of the, uh, the COVID pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, look, we, we've seen governments in the past increase taxes. It's not as though Albertans have never had to deal with tax increases, but we, we've never really... Approach the question of a, a sales tax, a PST or an mm-hmm. HST, right? I mean that that's, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's, it's I, I think certainly off limits in a lot of ways in Alberta politics. It it seems, even if other kinds of tax increases might actually be worse for the economy. Um, so I I mean you obviously realize that you know bringing the idea of a sales tax into the conversation, you know, you're you're kind of running into that that third rail of Alberta politics. But but how, and, and you alluded to it already the idea of a tax shift. But how how should we think about? this question yeah
2: it's uh the third rail is a great way to put it um the political suicide tax is also is. how pst is made uh, named here you know we, we have this sort of myth we have this uh image this brand as a place that doesn't have have a sales tax and you know, i think that served alberta well for for many many years um but the reality is you know once we tackle uh the expense side we we do need to find uh, new ways of of raising revenue. And uh, the the resource-based model uh, was just too unstable, too uncertain, too unpredictable. Uh, And so we would go through these massive swings, uh, upwards of about $6 billion in any given year. uh, If resource revenues were were good or were they're bad, that's what the the, the swing in provincial revenue take was. and 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 to really demonstrate that, that the, the the most viable options are 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 to look at, at those things that are more stable, more certain, and more fair. Now, you know the other key piece is that, um, you know as we as we as we go down this path, um, we have to recognize that as we continue to look for uh, greater support across the country and 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 and, and fiscal transfers, et cetera. You know, the first thing they look at is say, "Well, you don't have a sales tax. Just put in a sales tax." So we need to be cognizant of the fact of of, of how we can um, can prepare ourselves for for those continued conversations, um, and uh, and we just really need to to ensure that we're shoring up the predictability. You know, if we don't tackle this, we are currently in a net deficit, net debt position, forty billion dollars as a province. Over twelve years, that's gone from. Fifty billion net assets to forty billion net debt—that's a ninety billion dollar swing. Oh. We're affecting our competitiveness, the, 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 the services and programs that Albertans rely upon. Uh, if we don't tackle this, we're, we're affecting the future generations, of our kids or, and their kids, if they're saddled with massive government debt, um, and, uh, and, and 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 affecting our competitiveness. So we we really don't have the luxury of of saying. Uh, we we don't want a, a sales tax, we do need to find the revenue somewhere. Uh, and uh, that's, again, after we've tackled the expense uh, reductions that are necessary in the province. Um, and having that conversation with Albertans is not a, a not the, the question that currently is being asked in all the public opinion polls, do you want a sales tax, yes or no.
1: Right.
2: But it doesn't add the context of... Well, if you don't have a sales tax here, we have continued debt or we have reduced services. So we need to put it in a greater context against the backdrop of what it means going forward in terms of the goods and services and products, et cetera, that we receive as Albertans uh, and the future debt obligations if we don't have these conversations.
1: Yeah, that's an important point. Uh, The report is called Towards a Fiscally Sustainable Alberta, a Review of Provincial Government Finances. It's uh, up at businesscouncilab.com, if folks want to read it for themselves. Adam, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. All the best. That is uh, Adam Legge. is uh, president of the Business Council of Alberta, so businesscouncilab.com, again, is their website. Yeah, I, I think they're right. I think we do need to have this conversation. And, and in fairness, look, the Alberta government, the premier, the finance minister have hinted that, you know, that we may need to have that conversation, that we will at some point. And, and I think, you know, the, the government's willingness to address the spending side is is key. I, I think if you're gonna convince Albertans that we need to have that conversation, you gotta show that you're serious on the other side. That it's not just because we're too lazy or can't be bothered to look at spending, that we're just going to take more from you and that's going to fix the problem. People aren't going to get on board with that. we got to leave everything as it is. We're just going to slap on a sales tax and there we go, problem solved. That would be political suicide. But I think if you can show that you're serious, that look, we've got some structural spending problems on our end. We spend more per capita than other provinces. We're going to address that. We're going to make some some meaningful changes on that side. And then we're going to look at the other side. And look, you, it's not necessarily everybody's going to be on board, but I think it's a lot easier to sell it if that's the approach you take. Okay, so uh, big news out of Ottawa this week, the federal government moving ahead with legislation uh, to, to fulfill what they say are their commitments uh, with uh, new gun control legislation. Now, the federal government would have the jurisdiction, certainly, to ban handguns if it chose to do so. But that's not what they're choosing to do. They're proposing to give municipalities the power to further restrict handguns. But, of course, municipalities' powers to to do things or not do things is spelled out in provincial legislation, not federal. Uh, So, A, can the federal government do this? And what if provincial legislation already says that municipalities can't? Which brings us to our next guest, a private member's bill that she tabled in December that's now been given, I think, some added significance with the announcement out of Ottawa this week. Michaela Glasgow uh, tabled uh, Bill 211 uh, back in, as I say, early December. She is the UCP MLA for Brooks Medicine Hat, also chair of the Alberta Firearms Advisory Committee. Michaela Glasgow, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Rob. Uh, so I, I assume that Bill 211 was was a response to what we knew was coming anyway, and I guess what officially did come uh, this week. But talk a bit about uh, what, what the impetus was and what this bill proposes to do.
3: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Um, bill 211, um, as you know, and as many Albertans know, getting a private member's bill is uh, pretty rare. You can be an MLA for a long time before you ever get drawn for a private member's bill. So I wanted to make sure that my bill made an impact, that my bill was able to address a real problem that Albertans are facing right now. And many Albertans, uh, after speaking to them through the work of the Firearms Task Force, um, along with many other stakeholders in the community have reached out to me and told me just how how frightening it is to think that the federal government can make more laws to restrict what you can and cannot own as, a, as for your own private property. So Rob, this is an issue of personal property rights. And we wanted to make sure that um, the areas within provincial jurisdiction stay within ju- provincial jurisdiction. And as you said, um, one of those areas is within the municipalities. Um, the municipalities are under the sole jurisdiction of the province. Um, that's laid out in the Constitution Act, and we are um, we are planning to ensure by the passage of Bill 211 that um, regulating any sorts of firearms policy must be
1: approved by the province. So this would change, yeah, essentially what this does, it amends the Municipal Government Act, so it would Correct. make that change to make it clear uh, that any policy, any, any bylaw regarding firearms would, would be subject to provincial approval.
3: Correct. So if uh, if, if any um, municipality were to make any bylaws, should Bill 211 pass the Assembly. Um, if any municipality were to make a bylaw that um, is is regard to banning handguns, the um, provincial government could therefore say no.
1: So, yeah, I wonder what kind of a showdown we might be headed for here, because you're right. I mean, the Municipal Government Act spells out the powers that municipalities have. The federal government clearly believes that it can give municipalities this power, even though that's that's typically not the case. So um, I don't know. I mean, your thoughts on on kind of these these competing jurisdictional arguments.
3: Well, Rob, I don't think it's a surprise to Albertans to hear that the federal government is putting its nose where it does not belong. Um, we've seen this in other cases, um, such as um, in our energy industry. And so when we see when a bill like Bill 211, it's really a, fire, a firewall policy and a promise to Albertans that we would stand up for a fair deal for Alberta. And on this issue, it's specifically with their personal property rights. So their right you own property and we know that um, by and large um, the federal government is creating legislation that is handmade in Toronto made in Ottawa to deal with problems that uh, to deal with uh, what they seem to be a a rise in gun crime or, or crime in general but what we know is that these people who are committing these crimes are not doing so with legal firearms. So what they're doing um, with this legislation and by putting this pie in the sky idea out to the general public is creating a a hodgepodge of information, a patchwork of firearms laws across the country um, that um, all it's going to do is penalize law abiding firearm owners, which we know in Alberta, we have a history of safely safely acquiring, safely using and uh, a history of, of safe firearms ownership here in our province.
1: I wonder, though, if to some extent, the jurisdictional question may be answered by who gets there first. If, you know, this legislation is in place before the federal legislation, that might be a little bit different than if it's the other way around. Do you see some, some added urgency to this now?
3: There's absolutely urgency, Rob. Um, I'm not a lawyer, and uh, but I, but from what I've heard from lawyers um, who have consulted, who I've consulted on this piece of legislation, um, they, there, there would be a chance that a conflict between 211 and, and Bill C 21, the federal government bill, would result in litigation. However, um, it is, it's interesting to note that Saskatchewan has already done this. Um, in fact, that's where um, I, I saw the idea and I thought, wow, this is a great idea for Alberta. And I um, mm-hmm. kind of put it out there to our committee, the Alberta Firearms Advisory Task Force, and they were um, unequivocally um, supportive of that. So we are um, at this point, what, what is more dangerous, Rob, is to see patchwork um, laws in different areas of the country um, to create confusion and penalize um, law-abiding gun owners.
1: Now. You know, you mentioned the, the process for private members bill. I mean, under mm-hmm. usual circumstances, these can, these can take a while. But the statement we got yesterday from the uh, Justice Minister, uh, the government of Alberta will expedite Bill 211 and remains on track to appoint Alberta's chief firearms officer. So um, that, that changes the, the dynamics of all of this a little bit. In, in terms of what this will mean for your bill now going forward, what's your sense of the implications of that statement from the Justice Minister?
3: Well, I have to say, um, to have those kind of words from the Justice Minister means a lot as a private member. um, It shows that our government is listening to the needs of private members as well as the needs of Albertans. I mean, um, the Justice Minister is um, responding to the recommendations from the Alberta... Uh, Firearms Advisory Council um, in appointing a chief firearms officer. That's one of the things that we, one of the very first recommendations that we made as a committee. Um, And secondly, he is listening to Albertans by by endorsing this this bill that I brought forward, Bill 211, as that firewall policy that um, eliminates that can eliminate, sorry, the made in Toronto solution um, from the federal government. So I'm just happy to see that Minister Madu is is uh, listening and showing Albertans that he will stand up for their personal property rights in Alberta's government as
1: well. I mean, it's to some extent a moot point. I mean, what we've been hearing, even from from the mayors of the two big cities, uh, is that there's not a lot of enthusiasm for you know, taking the federal government up on this offer to you know, having municipalities step in and regulate this. So if there are no Alberta municipalities looking to do this anyway, I mean, is it, is it moot to some extent or is, is there still a need for a safeguard?
3: I don't think there's ever a bad time to be protecting the personal property rights of Albertans um, and to protecting their rights, period. We know that... Um, Albertans have been increasingly concerned about the actions of the federal government when it comes to the firearms file and uh, many other files as I mentioned before. So I think having this in place is just one of those firewall firewall measures that should something change, should um, municipal governments change, I'm glad to hear that the large metro mayors are not looking to this at this time. Um, However, I want to make sure that no matter who is in place, no matter who wins the elections um, going forward, that um, this is not an option on the table and that the personal property rights of Albertans who own handguns safely and use them to go to ranges and in appropriate ways um, will be protected in the future.
1: All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Michaela Glasgow, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this.
3: Really appreciate you having me. Thanks, Rob.
1: All right. Take care. Michaela Glasgow, UCP MLA for Brooks Medicine and also chair the Alberta Firearms Advisory Committee. So her private members bill 211 was uh, tabled on December 8th, the Municipal Government Amendment Act. And uh, to specifically put this measure in place, uh, that any kinds of, of bylaws dealing with firearms would be subject to approval by the provincial government. So that does create an interesting situation. The federal government says we're going to give municipalities the power to do this. And the provinces or some provinces saying, no, you're not. So I, I don't know. I don't know if this is something that um, you know, raises some constitutional issues, whether this is something that's going to end up in the courts. Again, I mean, otherwise, the jurisdiction's pretty clear. Provinces decide on, on how municipalities are going to function, how they're going to operate, what powers they have. So yes, if municipalities are, are essentially uh, creatures of, of the province, then I would think the province would win out here. We shall see, I guess. Off the top in this hour, though, I want to get back into the debate that's been happening. Certainly, Calgary's been a part of this conversation because Calgary's directly affected uh, around 911 calls and who answers those calls, how those calls are handled. Maybe it's the kind of thing that a lot of us are detached from. We just want to know that when we pick up the phone, if we have to dial 911, that someone's going to answer, somebody's going to respond. But in terms of who handles this, how this all works, there, there's a lot to that. So the Alberta government moved recently uh, to consolidate all 911 calls to the Alberta Health Services Provincial Dispatch Center. Now for a lot of Alberta, that was already the case. But it now brings Calgary, Red Deer, Lethbridge, and Fort McMurray, or more specifically, the regional regional municipality Wood Buffalo, into that consolidation. And the mayors of those four municipalities are not happy about this, and so there's been a real pushback. Uh, In Wood Buffalo, in fact, a week ago today, they went a step further. A week ago yesterday, uh, Wood Buffalo Council voted unanimously to no longer transfer 911 calls from its communications center to the AHS Provincial Dispatch Center. Now, the Alberta government uh, went to court, sought an, and received an injunction. So, those calls will be transferred, but I don't think this fight is over yet. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about all of this is someone who's been at the forefront of all of this and pushing back against the Alberta government, even uh, daring them to remove him as the mayor of the regional municipality, Wood Buffalo, Wood Buffalo Mayor Don Scott joins us uh, this afternoon. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Rob. It's great to be on. All
1: right. So let's talk about uh, what the status of all of this is now that uh, that injunction was, was granted last week. Uh, what, what did that mean in practice?
4: Yeah. So the government, uh, what they won in court was a temporary injunction. Uh, They presented a press release suggesting they got an injunction, and maybe they were hoping for that, but they did not get an injunction. They got a temporary injunction, which just means there's going to be a future court date where all this is explored a lot further. So uh, I can tell you one thing. We've certainly won in the court of public opinion, and uh, that's the court uh, that I think the government should be listening to. We have been advocating the error that the government is stepping into for seven months, and uh, they have just had their heads straight down they've been bullheaded about this and uh the way I could best describe it is they uh they've taken an approach that's as hard as a woodpecker's lips they just <laughs> do not bury and uh, it's unfortunate because four previous governments have uh have not taken this decision and they were uh they were lobbied for it, but they did not take the same This is the first government in a very long time that decided they'd take this step. And I believe it's putting, uh, putting patients at risk. And we showed them those facts. Ninety percent of the time, our, our municipalities dispatch ambulances faster, but they are not listening.
1: What do you suspect, then, their motivation is? I mean, obviously, you don't, don't speak for them, but is this meant to be a cost savings uh, approach or, or what's, what's your sense?
4: You know, a lot of people have said it's a move towards privatization of that entire system, and, uh, you know, no one's confirmed that to me. It's certainly been strongly rumored that that's uh, where they're headed, and I know that that seems to be a step. Uh, Where they're headed right now, though, is uh, a deterioration in in service for Albertans and uh, certainly the residents of my region. We saw it immediately. As soon as the change was triggered, which was about two and a half weeks ago, uh, we saw an immediate deterioration, and we've we've been reporting them, and they've been in the news, some of them, and it's it's very unfortunate. You know, uh, we've we've had a good system since 1979; it's worked, and suddenly the government thinks they know better. They can come in and figure it all out for us, and uh, I think anybody who just thinks about that fact alone would know that that's uh, that's not reality. That's you know, the government thinks they're here to help, but they make things worse, and that's exactly what's happening.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I saw the comments last week from uh Wood Buffalo MLA Tanya Yao who's who's uh, you know thrown some support behind the council or at least raised some concern about this change. I mean, you've got council making this decision unanimously. So I, I think that's really powerful because this isn't, you know, a, a partisan issue, right? This this isn't that you're trying to, you know, that because you disagree with the, the you know, the, the provincial government's approach in general. That it's on this specific issue, it's not about politics or partisanship. It goes a lot deeper than that. So what kind of a statement is it, in your view, then, that you've got council last week voting unanimously uh, to essentially defy the province and and to have the MLA uh, for for the area lending some support as well?
4: Yeah. You know, uh, those that support the decision, I think, have taken the time to look at the facts, and they see the obvious benefits in dispatch times. Uh, You know, there's example after example. Uh, There was a situation that happened uh, not that long ago last week where prior to, uh, like, once the consolidation happened, so once AHS, the provincial government, stepped in, It took uh, over two minutes to dispatch an ambulance for a rural community. When we stepped in and took it back for a day before the government took us to court, uh, you know, it took 20 seconds. That's the difference in time that we're talking about. So if you're having a heart attack, you're having a stroke, uh, you want an ambulance that is uh, dispatched as quickly as possible. That's exactly what we can deliver. As soon as AHS steps in, what you get is a bureaucratic nightmare. And, uh, you know, we saw evidence of it over and over uh, as soon as they took over the dispatching.
1: So what about the argument then that, you know, this has been the case for for much of the province for a number of years now and and that that system seems to be working fine? That's the province's Uh,
4: position. Uh, You know, I've been hearing from uh, mayors all over Alberta who said it's uh, it's not working at all. And uh, they raised concerns and the government just forced it on them, just like they're trying to force it on us.
1: So explain what happens right now, then. Somebody in in Fort McMurray or in, in the municipality, uh, Wood Buffalo, makes a 911 call. Who answers that call? How is that call handled?
4: Yeah, the real problem is when a- AHS gets involved. So we take the call. We transfer it to AHS. AHS will receive it in uh, a call center that's in a different part of Alberta. And what we've seen happening is that's not necessarily one who's going to dispatch the ambulance there's going to be another transfer that happens to another dispatcher somewhere else in Alberta, and after they figure it out, then they're going to take the step of dispatching an ambulance. The problem is, and what we've seen over and over, is you want local people dispatching ambulances because they know local landmarks. There's a lot of addresses in Fort McMurray, for example, in Wood Buffalo, which is big as Nova Scotia, is bigger than Nova Scotia, that uh, you need local knowledge to understand. And uh, if you talk... It, the other thing is safety. Local dispatchers understand when people get calls over and over to certain addresses, they know when the police should be dispatched. There's lots of good reasons, but I would say those are two of the prominent ones. Uh, but this idea of transferring the call all over the province before you dispatch an ambulance makes no sense. When the existing system, everybody was in the same room, and uh, you could just dispatch an ambulance immediately and you have that local knowledge right there to make sure that uh, people were, were uh, getting all the, the information they needed and if the police needed to be called then you had a good sense of that right away too because there's there's some calls that you kind of have a sense of it or certainly that's what's been described to me by the dispatchers so uh, you know we're still committed to fighting this tooth and nail and it's going to be back in court i understand in may and uh, we'll see where it goes but I, uh, I'm deeply disappointed that the government is not listening to Albertans. I had a call with Minister Shandro just before we went to court, and he said he wanted to set up a table for discussion. You know, he had seven months. Uh, we were complaining about this issue, and not only myself, but Mayor Neche, and uh, Mayor Spearman, and Mayor Beer. And uh, we sat at the table alone. They didn't uh, have any interest in it. Now suddenly it's uh, it's become more of an issue in Alberta, so now they're suddenly wanting to sit with us. You know, the time for sitting has has passed. Uh, they really have to engage on this issue and stop this change. It, it makes absolutely no sense.
1: So I guess last week when this passed uh, at, at council, passed unanimously, I mean, you, you must have known the kind of reaction it was going to get from the Alberta government. Was, was this born of that frustration or at least, you know, doing something dramatic to, you know, try to get their attention? What, what was the thought?
4: You know, I, I didn't anticipate the reaction that, that uh, came from it. Uh, you know, I, I was certainly prepared to be removed as a result of the decision, and I, I indicated as much. And uh, I don't take any of that lightly. I used to be a minister for Alberta uh, right. under Jim Prentice, and I served as an MLA under Jim Prentice. So I understand uh, the importance of serving and uh, serving this role as as mayor. And I'm deeply committed to it. I love my region, love my community, but I also need to make sure that my residents are protected. And if uh, if I need to take a principled stand, which is the way I I viewed this, you know, I, I have a deeply held conviction on this, and I think. My counsel demonstrated that they do as well. And, you know, we, we wanted to take a, a very hard stand on this. And and if the government thinks otherwise, then they can force us into court. It doesn't mean that they dispatch ambulances better. All it means is that they're willing to force us into court, which is the step they took. But we're still uh, committed to going to court. And... We'll see if others follow suit. Uh, I anticipate that it's possible that other jurisdictions or other entities might join in that battle, but we'll uh, we'll see where it goes.
1: And and I guess as as you alluded to, I mean you you were willing to put your neck out there, and if the province wants to remove you as as mayor, you said that, that they can do so. Uh, I mean, is that still a, a possibility? Do, do you think? I mean, what, what's your sense on on that
4: front? You know, I uh, I'm not. In the least bit afraid of it, I, I put the challenge out there. If they want to do it, then they're welcome to. I uh, I believe in this enough that it's, uh, that it's a it's it's a stand that I certainly am willing to take and willing to issue, and uh, it's a cause that I believe in. And I think the this is it. You know, the health of the residents of my region is something I'll stand up for at any point and take this exact same stand. So I have certainly no no problem with it. And uh, I, I would reissue the statement today. If they want to remove me, then they're welcome to do it on this issue. I, I have no problem with that.
1: We'll see where it all goes from here. Mayor Don Scott, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks again for having me. All, all right. Take
1: care. That is Don Scott. As he mentions, former uh, MLA and provincial cabinet minister. He is the mayor of the regional municipality, Wood Buffalo. And clearly he feels very strongly about this issue. And that uh, he'll keep fighting. And if the Alberta government wants to remove him, the the province has that power, that they can replace the mayor, replace the council. Uh, So he's pretty convinced, council there is pretty convinced, that things were fine and that this change leaves the community worse off. Right, And and they clearly uh, are very passionate about that opinion. So this isn't, you know, some some left-wing city council, you know, trying to get in the way of the government's conservative agenda. It's it's nothing like that. You know, Don Scott was, was a Tory MLA Tory cabinet minister. It's it's not about that. It's about the question of local control versus provincial centralization. Does it make sense to take this away from the municipality? and roll it into the centralized system. Does that make the system better? Right, obviously the municipality thinks it makes it a lot worse. And when you're talking about 911 calls, that's not something you want to see worsened. Uh, Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. By the way, uh, we're going to get an update today from Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, but it's uh, going to be at 4 o'clock instead of the uh, typical 3.30. Not not sure why, but we will have that live for you just to give you a heads up. Uh, So a little bit later today for uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw. So as I alluded to before the bottom of the hour, uh, you know, we certainly made some progress in Alberta in terms of bringing down the uh, case count, bringing down hospitalizations. I guess we'll see how this first phase uh, of the uh, reopening goes. It's been about uh, just over a week or so. I mean, the wild card here is uh, the situation with variants. So something else we're watching each day. How many of these variants have we detected? Which of the variants uh, are they? What do we know about links to travel? What do we know about community, uh, community spread? So these, these are big questions. Fortunately, I think we're in a position where most positive tests are being screened to see if if, uh, it's any of the variants, and we've certainly been able to rebuild our contact tracing, so that's helpful as well. But do we need to go further? Uh, We we do have some flexibility on the testing side, you know, in between how many tests we can theoretically do a day and how many we are doing a day. In fact, it was just over 5,000 yesterday, which is well below capacity. Is it time to make better use of that capacity? Uh, should we look at expanding testing, going back to what we did last year with asymptomatic testing, as a way maybe to try to stay a step ahead uh, of all of this? So uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Vanessa Meyer-Stevenson, infectious disease physician with the University of Calgary uh, uh, Cummings School of Medicine. Dr. Meyer-Stevenson, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good morning. Hi there. I guess afternoon at this point, yeah, so. I so. but, Yeah. <laughs> I
1: appreciate you joining us here today. Let me start first of all. Your thoughts, kind of on, on where we're at at the moment, with you know progress on on the one hand, but you know concern about the variants and, and what might lie ahead on the other hand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's not let's not not the the progress that we have made. Those numbers are coming down. Hospitalizations are coming down. These are all really positives, and it it speaks to the fact that you know people are are really trying to adhere to these guidelines as much as possible. Um, what you bring up though with uh, you know these new variants and how we're, we're keeping a close eye on them and, and, and checking whenever we do get positives whether or not any of these are of these variant uh, um, COVID strains that, that have been uh, uh, circulating. Um, certainly, it's, um, it's raising concerns in terms of, you know, how, how are we going to incorporate this going forward in terms of our planning and our um, strategizing for, for, for keeping the numbers down and keeping them low. While we try to do um, try our attempts at reopening um, various various aspects of our, our economy and of our, of our community,
1: right you know, it's interesting because it, it seems to be for the most part uh, the variants we found here, the the b one one seven variety, although um, some of the other ones have been detected. Um, I, I guess in terms of vaccines and immunity. There's less concern in that sense about the b one one seven variant, but mm-hmm. the fact that it seems to be more contagious, maybe even possibly have more serious outcomes that's worrisome too but um yeah, I don't know I mean your thoughts on, on whether we should be more concerned about certain variants than others I mean how, how do you engage yeah, your question well, with
0: that? well as, as you as you've alluded to so we've we've got these two circulating well there are two variants uh one is circulating a little more than the other, so the the b one one seven um is, is probably a little less of a concern regarding the immunity and vaccines and if you've had a previous, um, previous COVID. So it's possible mm. awesome. that prior infection or prior uh, vaccination will cover you for that one. So that that's, that's reassuring from that front. But just the mere fact that it's still able to spread um, more readily and... Um, and potentially, uh, you know, more more quickly through for, for groups and through communities, and kind of figuring out, you know, how do, how do we tackle that? Should we change things a little differently? Part of the part of the bottom line comes down to what do we know about this virus, and in, in terms of what's changed, is there anything different about it? I mean, the fa- some of the things that we do know is that it is able to produce more virus more quickly, um, so, uh, according to um, both epidemiology studies and through in lab studies. Um, the, the question of whether or not it creates more severe disease is something still kind of debated. And certainly, there are studies out of the UK that suggest that it is a bit that it does create more severe disease, but we haven't been seeing the same sort of pattern in other countries. So that, that question is still yet to be yet to be answered. Just the same, um, that question comes within a context as well. So when you have a lot of cases occurring in a community, um, if it's overwhelming the healthcare system, you're going to end up with more severe outcomes. Um, as a, as, a, as a fact of, of overburdening uh, the, the system and whatnot, and so um, while it might not at the, vi- the virus level cause more severe disease, or at the individual level, it has the potential, perhaps at, at a you know at, at the public level, you know at the, at the community level, to cut, create more problems. Now, so, so, um, yeah. oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I,
1: finish, finish your thought. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. Oh, just just partly just stating some of the facts around around what we know about the virus. We still have a lot of gaps about. How this um, sort of that, that phase before someone develops symptoms, and this is the part where I think um, we should be focusing a lot of our attention to um, some of those gaps in, in knowledge are, are how long is someone infectious before or before they they show symptoms? So we talk mm-hmm. about that pre-symptomatic phase. So if the virus is, is able to produce more viral particles and whatnot, um, is an individual producing more and more virus and therefore shedding more and more virus for longer periods prior to them becoming symptomatic. Certainly people are are isolating and and or getting tested when they develop symptoms but it's that pre-symptomatic phase that is the big question mark and I think this is one of the bigger questions around what's happening with these variants right now. Just given what we do know about how it's acting both in the community and and in the lab setting we're just we have more virus that's being produced. These things are much more readily able to replicate themselves and this is a you know, incorporating some of this information into our public health strategy may be an important way of tackling this and moving forward. That we're ahead of the game.
1: Yeah, and and that that's the tricky part of it because I I think you know we're we're doing some smart things in, in terms of you know we've, we've changed the isolation requirements for confirmed variant cases. We're we're doing a lot of screening, so the genetic screening. So we're we're certainly mm. on the hunt for these variants, but a lot of that is is reactive. So. When you talk about the challenges of presymptomatic individuals, do you see it? And it gets to the question of asymptomatic testing. Is that maybe one way that we could try to address that side of the challenge?
0: And uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's perhaps one of the ways that we need to go at least until we can accrue some more information. Um, it's quite possible that maybe someone has uh, a shorter period of asymptomatic. Spread. Maybe, maybe that's the case. In which case, then you know what? That's that's actually probably a better scenario because then someone is in, uh, an individual is isolating as soon as they develop symptoms, and they have a smaller window when they could spread it to someone. But if the converse is true, so if someone is shedding for longer and higher amounts of virus, well, then that creates a that creates a problem in a longer window when someone could potentially be spreading to other people and creating new um, new outbreaks without even knowing it. Um, so if we were to uh, look at targeted asymptomatic. Uh, testing, and, and by that I mean any individual who spends any time in the community for whatever reason. So perhaps, you know, with a focus on people who would be at greater risk of spreading to higher risk individuals. So nursing home staff or healthcare workers, um, paramedics, police officers, potentially some from, from that front. Um, maybe even looking at anyone who uses um, public transit or those who are um, um, driving uh, taxis or rideshare services. Um, potentially teachers. I mean, anyone who's in, who would see other people outside of their bubble um, as part of their day-to-day work schedules, That may, these populations may be some of those that you know, we could look at targeting some of this testing.
1: Yeah. Well, and it sounds like we're, we're looking at doing that with some of this, uh, rapid testing is more of a screening approach and long-term mm-hmm. care in particular, potentially in other workplaces. But when it comes to the PCR testing, if we've got the capacity to do, you know, say 20,000 a day and we're doing... Well, yesterday, I think it was 5,200 tests, something like that. We're we're typically doing around or less than 10,000 a day. So does it make sense to to make use of that capacity?
0: Yeah, certainly. Anytime we try to increase or or, increase testing and increasing uh, all of these different things, Everything comes to the cost, so it 's not just yeah. you know as, as it is so if we if we maximize our capacity in the lab in terms of being able to do this, I think um, I saw some of the numbers from before Christmas or during our uh, during our second wave, we had over twenty thousand uh, tests being done um, a, a day in in alberta and so Um, that uses up material. that uses up our um, laboratory resources and and the time there. And if we maximize that out as well, I mean, our our turnaround times are also going to increase, right? So, I mean, right now we're we're having really short turnaround times for when someone gets a test. And so that, you know, taking some of that into account, it's not just a simple let's max everything out. But I certainly think um, until we have more of that information, it may be one strategy to getting that information to really inform how we can, safely keep things open and, and and move forward it would be a shame to backtrack um if we realize that you know we're, we're playing catch-up and now we've lost we've lost this ground yeah. that we're, we're we've, we've worked so hard to get to right now and so you know it all it all it does come at a cost just the same so it, it, it's within a context as is everything
1: yeah well something to think about uh we'll leave it there dr meyer stevenson yeah. appreciate your input on this thanks so much for make some time for us here
0: not a
1: problem. Take care. All right. You as well. Thanks. Uh, that's uh, Vanessa Meyer-Stevenson, infectious disease phys- physician, University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine. So I'd like that idea of, you know, not necessarily we're going to aim for an arbitrary target of 20,000 tests a day, but if we've got a bit of added capacity and we're worried about potential community spread, um, you know, let's, let's try to, to figure out, okay, well, well which, uh, you know, groups are, are maybe more at risk or which professions, are, you know, are more forward-facing, in terms of dealing with the public. So we could say, for example, here's a list. If if you work in any of these jobs or if you're a regular user of transit or you know that, that kind of an approach and say, we're going to open up testing. You're not required to, but again, we can enlist the pharmacies and say, okay, if you uh, use public transit and you're asymptomatic, head down to your local pharmacy, book a test, and, and you can get an asymptomatic test there. And that might give us a little bit more of an idea of, you know, is, is this a, a problem, you know, in terms of uh, community spread? So that might be a sensible way to go. Obviously, what we're trying to do is stay a stab it ahead of this so we don't have to be reactive and say, oh, crap, numbers have surged, shutting things down again. And I think people are really fed up with the, um, you know, the in and out of lockdown approach. So it doesn't mean just give up, wave the white flag and hope for the best. It just means being smarter. And I think that this is one way that we could be.